Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Golf Under Par podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough here. I've got a very special guest, Brett McCabe. Uh, he's a sports and performance psychologist. He's got it from website, The Mindside. You also may have heard his his voice on The Secrets of to Winning with Brett McCabe. That's a podcast there you can find on all the streaming services. We're very glad to have you on here, Brett. Thank you so much for and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And it's, uh, you know, as you and I are doing this video, you see where I'm at. I'm in my car. That's the office of a psychologist. Uh, I'm out and about doing the things I need to do, but uh, I'm glad to, I'm glad to, to sit down and chat with you about some performance and uh, probably some injury stuff. And so let's rock and roll. Yeah. So I always start off asking all my guests, you know, background in golf or how did you get into golf? Yeah, you know, I, my dad was in the military, and so we moved around quite a bit. And when we moved to the Philippines, I was like first or second grade. And when you're living overseas in a base, there's not much to do. And you end up doing every activity that's on the base. My dad was a college baseball player, so I played baseball, loved t-ball, loved baseball, played it through college. But I can remember when we moved there. This was probably 1977. Um, I'm 48 now. And I remember going to play golf and you, you went on the base and, and you played and, and I loved it. And I played for a couple of years when I was over there, just as a kid, like nine holes was like a lot for me. And then I put it away and I put the clubs away. And I remember going to see a friend in San Antonio when I was probably maybe a sophomore or junior in high school. And we went out to a park and started hitting golf balls and I fell in love with it. And I played all the time. And while, when I went to college and I was fortunate enough, it was kind of our baseball guys at LSU were either going to be hunters or they were golfers. And so to get away, they'd either go hunting and fishing or they'd play golf. And I didn't hunt and fish. So we went to the golf course. And for us, we played every absolute second we had off. So the minute there was a 18 hole golf course, as you know, even probably the one that I played was torn down when you were there, but they, we would hurry up and go play. We, we, if we didn't have practice, which wasn't very often, but if we didn't have practice, we would eat as fast as we could in the dorm and we just cruise over to the golf course and play as many holes as we can. And then we'd go to weights and then we'd do it the next day. And so I fell in love with the game of golf then. And, and I just always used it as my escape. Professionally, I got into golf because when I became a psychologist, I got into, I became a clinical psychologist because of my interest in injury um, and rehabilitation. The struggles I had when I was pitching and the pain that I had in my shoulder and stuff, that got me really interested on the mental side. It wasn't so much the physical, it was the mental side because I really, really struggled with it. So when I turned, when I became a psychologist and was doing stuff on the side, I love golf so much that I just kind of looked at what players were doing from a golf standpoint, from what we did as pitchers. And I took that same mindset and it just kind of extrapolated into it and, and it was better and it became a lot of fun. 
look, golf is golf's the ultimate sport. And the reason I love to do it, my, both my daughters played it through high school. Um, it's the sport that we can all play and cross our entire lives. We can all be different levels and all enjoy playing together. You can't go skiing with somebody of different levels and enjoy it. You know, one person's on the green falling down. The person who skis double black diamond is bored. But in golf, a foursome of us can play with everybody across the, the ages, everybody of different abilities, and still enjoy it. And, and that's kind of what brought me to the game. And I've been fortunate enough professionally to work with some great players and to be around them. And, and I still just stay true to what I'm doing with regards to um, the, the mental game and seeing it as a pitcher standpoint. Awesome. Yeah, so I think the course uh, the LSU, at least the one that I played, was right next to the, the baseball stadium. Um, okay, so here's the deal. And, you know, for people who didn't go to LSU, you got to realize um, you got sorry, there was a call coming in. You got to realize at LSU, it's a cow college. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. LSU being pretty not pretty much the only university in the state of Louisiana. We don't talk about UL Lafayette, even though they want to call themselves University of Louisiana. You're still University of Southwestern Louisiana to me. Sorry. <laughs> um but at LSU, you've got all the cows and the vet school. Then you also have the engineering program. You have the business school, all this other stuff. And the old LSU golf course was nine holes across the street from the business school. And it was, and then you'd go across the street, across the railroad tracks to where the baseball stadium is now. And that was the first five holes of the back nine. And then where the new golf course is, those were the last four holes. So we would play around the clock. So they've torn them down for parking. and But right. we played all the time. I mean – it was our golf course, our golf club stayed in our trunks. And as soon as coach, if we had a meeting during the fall and it was like, Hey, we're out of here. It was haul ass and get to the golf course. And I still, this is awful. And I'm just going to say we paid $6 and 28 cents. Cause I remember seeing my check register. You'd write $6 and 28 cents. You pay for nine holes and you'd play 45. They would never come tell you to bring the card in anything like that. And I felt so, I mean, you look back at that. I'm like, man, what were we doing? We were college kids. He didn't care. Probably knew we were baseball guys. and was like, whatever, probably calling coach. But we played, I guess there were worse things we could do. Right, right. So as, as, you're a, as a clinical psychologist, I feel like during this pandemic, we have to, we have to address something that, that's kind of been going on in, in the world. And, you know, a lot of mental issues are coming about from the isolation and, and well, social media has its own little thing, but. I really wanted to just get your, your quick tips or um, maybe even well, tips is the right word, your, your professional opinion, really. Uh, you know, what can we do to kind of break the stigma of seeking out help? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things here, right? And um, I think one of the big, big factors is that we, we have to look, we, we had an emerging mental health crisis that was coming even before this uh, pandemic crisis. Um, the, the reason is, is that for the longest time we've looked at you know, we made a really nice shift in the medical model into a wellness model, but we've always seen to use mental health as really not even an illness model, but a last stop model. When the house is on fire, now we're going to allow you to get treatment, but we're not going to allow you to do anything. We're not going to allow you to um, uh, seek treatment in a preventative manner unless you have cash. Um, the lowest income, the lowest insurance um, holders are going to get the worst treatments. They're going to get waitlisted and, and so on. And yet we're dealing with people's psyches and their perspective and their ability to function. Um, and so I'm a big believer on destigmatization. I think it's a horrendous thing that we do in our country to take people's mental health and put it on the back burner and just assume that they need to pick themselves up. Now, fortunately, a lot of churches will fill that gap 
because, you know, of that kind of perspective. And so I'm a very big believer in using church-based pastoral care. But the, um, I think now that we've got this pandemic coming, we're seeing anxiety rates, we're seeing um, depression rates tripling across our country. And I really believe strongly that what we're seeing is the emergence of maybe some underlying pandemic issues that are really coming on full steam. We have a major issue in this country. We, um, we, we don't focus on the mental health and the wellness of people until there's problems. Um, we, don't, we don't empower and, and, and mobilize our young to realize how to manage the increase in stress. Your industry has done a brilliant job over the last 10 to 15 years of taking movement and exercise and making it mainstream. We're 20 years behind. And as parents, as teachers, as coaches, we have a responsibility to help individuals not stigmatize themselves, not go, oh, they're crazy. Uh, Oh, you're weak. You need to go see a therapist. Um, Can you imagine if we said, hey, your back is, I mean, you're the weakest player I've ever dealt with because you just can't squat. I mean, that's, but we make those comments in mental health. We're seeing the rates of mental health needs dramatically increasing amongst our college population. And some of it is comparison. Their standards of excellence are completely skewed. Okay. You and I, you're younger than I am, but people who are listening to this, you know, we knew globally what was going on. We didn't carry the stress regularly. Now, somebody puts out a tweet, doesn't even have to be accurate. It can be somewhat incendiary. It can be a firebomb. And all of a sudden, we internalize it. We got people going around talking about, oh, my God, President Trump wins. It's the worst thing that I've ever experienced in my life, right? All those fears really never came to truth. And I'm not, this is not a political statement. It's the same thing that people are saying, oh, my God, we got Biden as president. Our country's going to go to shit. No, it's not. We, we've always persevered, Okay. Um, but what happens is we latch on. We also look at people and say, oh, to be successful in your career as a physical therapist with a doctorate in physical therapy, you're going to come out at 28 and you're going to be making $400,000 a year because I saw that with some guy who was selling a course online. Even though that's completely made up, it's complete fraud. Okay? They're seeing pitchers throw 98 miles an hour because they're taking six crow hops and throwing up against a backstop. We're not seeing them six weeks from now when they're having Tommy John or we're not seeing the fact that they did 47 of those and finally got one that the gun misread and said 98 miles an hour. Those are the standards. And so what happens is we, you know, you ask a a college kid turning pro in golf, when do you think they should be on the tour? And they say next year. They don't understand. They see the outliers of Justin Thomas's, Colin Marikawa, Victor Hovland, Matthew Wolf, and all the like, and they forget superstars. Well, I mean, superstars like Billy Horschel, one of my clients. Had many attempts back and forth between the web or the corn fairy, whatever you want to call it, and missing Q school, getting through and whatever. Brian Harmon, three years on the mini tours, right? They see, they don't see those as standards. They see those as, um, as like, well, I mean, that's not going to happen to me. I, I'm supposed to be that good. I'm supposed to be recruited from co- high school when I was a freshman. Right. Oh, yeah. And every kid in my class is going to have a 34 on the ACT. So what we see is the standards are completely skewed. And so as a result, that adds unbelievable pressure and the need to be perfect. And we don't allow people to just to be average anymore. Like when you and I, when you and I were in school in high school, I don't know where you went to high school. Are you from Louisiana? No, I'm originally from Indiana. But Okay. All right. Man, that must have been one hell of a culture shock coming down to LSU. It was. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Um, 
you know, I went to an all boys Catholic school in Baton Rouge, a tremendous school, a college prep. I mean, we prided ourselves on people and I'm very honored to be a part of the alumni base because we were very proud of it. We had two kids in my class that made a 33 on the ACT. And we thought, my God, they're the smartest freaking dudes we've ever seen in our lives. My daughters graduated. They had seven kids in their high school that had a perfect score in the ACT. That's first of all, that's not a good test, but second, that's a, that's all of a sudden now we're going, holy crap, that's what my kids are supposed to do. I mean, we when my youngest daughter or my oldest daughter was going through the, not recruitment process, but we were searching out colleges that would take her. Um, I'm joking if she listens to this, but we were sitting at Auburn and they were up and they said, well, you know, the low average of our students entering Auburn, like you have to at least have a 27 and a 3.9 to graduate to get in. And we're like, my God, I would have never gotten into LSU. I mean, LSU, literally, all you had to do was sign your name and pass the ACT, and you got in when I went. Right. And now we're looking at our state schools and making them like freaking Harvard. Okay? So I think the pressure, all to your point of this stuff and the life that we live right now is brutally hard. And we need to help us in every form and fashion, mentally, psychologically, emotionally uh, spiritually everything to manage not only the burden of this pandemic but also the burden that we're putting on people for our lives yeah i think you know keeping up with the joneses is definitely taking it's another step to because all you see is is the best things out of everybody so um it's awful i I mean i fight that with you know trying to have trying to do do things on my own and have a side hustle and and whatnot and it's like oh man i should be doing this and this and this and and it's because I see other people yep. doing stuff and it, 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 it plays on you for sure. I can, I can vouch for that. But well, I, one of the things I love to do is I love to write and I love to create. Um, I did the podcast so I wouldn't have to write a book. We're going to quiet the, we're going to put the podcast on a little bit of a back burner for the next six months as we're launching something new, not because we don't enjoy it just because of time. Um, I'm going to shift content to a different platform for a short amount of time. Um, but I love to write. And this morning I was writing and I love to sit down when I'm feeling um, empowered to sit and write and clear my thoughts. But I look at my colleagues in the field and they're like, every year we write a new book and every year I'm thinking, my God, I've got 60 clients I see a week, all in performance. I'm consulting with my tour players. I'm supposed to write. I'm also trying to be a dad and a parent and I'd like to have some fun. I mean, you know, I I don't like to work out. Um, So that's not taking my time, but I'm like, how the hell do you write? And then I get their books and I'm like, oh, they're really good books, but they're not seminal pieces of work. Okay. They're not the books that we think of 25 years ago where it was through 16 editors. And it's more like, hey, I'm going to get this out. I'm going to get this content out. We're going to get this. And we're going to, it's, it's as, you know, Gary Vanderchuk would say, just publish it, just get it out there. And, and I've got to do that. But I sit and hold it and like, I'm, I'm studying every word. I'm making sure the content flows. Because to me, it's it's my fingerprint. And so I don't want anyone to ever say, man, I read your book. It was a good content. Suck for writing, but good work. Right. And so that's the only pressure we put on ourselves, right? And yet every time I go out and work with my tour players, I've got 10, I think, or 11 I work with on the PGA Tour. Every single time I work with them, I get a pit in my stomach and a nervousness that before I work with them, that I'm going to screw up and I'm, I'm, they're not going to trust me and they're not going to like me and all the other stuff. And those are that's what we do. I mean, that's just human nature. Yeah, so why don't we why don't we kind of twist this into into more golf world? I mean, we talk about life here, and I think golfers go through the exact same thing. You know, they see uh, on on whatever broadcast it is of whatever tournament, and they go, "Oh man, they're hitting these shots and, and amazing shots," and that's what you almost always see. 
So, you know, one of the things that I try to do with my players is I try to level set them. Right. And one of the, one of the worst things, not worst things, one of the funniest things that you get as a psychologist is, Hey doc, you probably never heard this before. And it's like, no dude, every day, every day. Okay. It's very hard to shock a, a clinical psychologist. Okay. I've heard over the 20 years, people's worst, scariest, whatever. And you go, and they go, that's normal. That's really normal. Like, yeah, it's normal. Oh man. Okay. Well, what they also think on the opposite side is, oh my God, you know, I should make every eight footer. Well, the PGA tour averages is 50% on the best greens, the best balls with the best equipment, with the best putters in the world, really systematically. They make 80% of them, but no, no, no. You at your club or dad for your junior should make every eight footer, but Tiger Woods doesn't make all his average is 50, 50. Um, a PGA tour player wins 80% of their income in five events a year. But dad, mom, your kids should win every tournament they're in. And they should never have a bad day because a bad day means their coaches or they don't have it or they're mentally weak. When in reality, the truth of the matter is it's really freaking hard. It is so hard. It is so difficult. And as you go higher up the mountain, the expectations, which what, what we look at get more difficult. And we have to be aware of what it takes. We have to be aware of the difficulty that's out there. And so those unrealistic expectations that we have and those challenges that we have in our experiences make it very, very difficult. And what we have to do is instead of getting caught up in this world that I call Suckville, which is this unrealistic expectation that we're always falling short of our potential, is that we have to be aware of what we're doing is really hard. And we have to commit to our process and instead engage our mind to be more grind-based versus more validation-based. We are in the grind. I, I talked to one of my players as we're recording this. The U.S. Women's Open is going off today. And I talked to one of them and I said, you know, your biggest flaw, and I love you to death, your biggest flaw is you think that every day should be the greatest expression of your ability. No, every day is the most average expression of your ability. And we've got to go out there and embrace. She's like, I've never even thought of that. Like, I never thought that my average is how I should play. And I'm like, I want you to fully commit to every shot you hit. I want you to compete like hell. I want you to battle. But at the end of the day, it's going to fall into your scope as a regular round of golf. And I had a podcast I did with the band director at the University of Alabama. It was the most insightful podcast. It's the most quoted podcast I've done with my PGA Tour players. He said, every day you go out to play, every day you go out to, to blow in your horn, whatever you do in your life, you think it's going to be your best day. But it, your best is defined as the once-in-a-lifetime experience. Why would you want to blow it today? And I was like, man, what a great idea. Like, that is beautiful perspective. And he's right. Yeah, that that's an awesome, you know, why would you want to blow it today? Um, and, you, yeah, I think you bring up a great point for all of us to understand is that it's an average, right? And the average is, is what day to day is. And so, you know, kind of that one, that 1% improvement is what makes that average better and better. Right. Um, yep. So that's what I'd like to talk about next is, you know, what can we do about, you know, maybe improving our consistency with, with that grind that you kind of mentioned versus the, you know, validation mindset. Well, I think the, the biggest thing to do is you have to understand as players, life, anything like you and I go to work uh, and let's just be, let's just be frank. 
your patients don't know if you're not all there today. Okay. And I don't mean that to mean that you're unsafe. That's not what I mean. But if you're distracted, you're tired, you stayed up late watching, you're you're on the final episode of a great binge on Netflix and you're a little tired and you go in there and it's like, I'm going to coffee it up. I can get through today. Nobody's going to know the difference. Mandalorian for me. Mandalorian. Okay. I haven't gotten into it yet. I'm I'm a Star Wars fan, but I haven't gotten into it. It's good. Um, Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I, I, you go out there and and as a player, you go out there and they assume that they're going to have hundred percent of their capacity every single day. They're going to be, their abilities that they've trained are always going to be there. There are things that you did in, in physical therapy school that you've never done again, yep. ever. And there may be an illness and uh, there may be an c- affliction or something that somebody's comes up and you're like, yo, dude, I hadn't seen this since I was in training in a book. Okay. But what you do is you don't go, oh, I'm such an idiot. God, I should have, I should have known that and known exactly what to do. Well, that's exactly what golfers do. They prepare they think they've got everything in their preparation ready. So when it presents themselves in a round of golf, they think they should have had the answer. And the reality of the fact is you're not going to have hundred percent of your abilities every day. You may not like the people you're playing with in a competitive round. You may like, I woke up this morning, my ankle feels like it's got something going on in it. I don't know what it is. I've got one artificial hip. I've got another one on the way. Um, I'm a wreck. That's why I hate to work out. Did I already say that? And, and so you, you do all those things, right? And you get out there and it's like, you, you think, oh, today's going to be the best day. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm having to kind of hit little skinny cuts out there because I don't quite have my ability to move. Okay, nothing wrong with that. That's what I've got today. Great players maximize what they have each day, not fight what they don't have. Most players chase what they're missing. They sit out there and they work it, they work it, they work it to try to find it. This is important in life too. We have got to start taking what we have every day and making the most of it. Awesome. So what, what kind of things can people do to kind of maybe deal with some of that negativity that you're talking about where, Oh, I'm the worst player ever. I'm the worst, worst person in the world. Cause I didn't see this coming or I didn't know about this. Make it, make it a challenge. One of the things I ask my players is look, I hate it when I see a player make a double on the golf course, right? I want them to do that. I've had players that are surging, man. They're cruising. And all of a sudden they get just knees cut off from underneath them and they lose their momentum and they slide back. And what I always tell them is we didn't mean for that to happen. It wasn't bad intention. You're not a bad person. The game odds got you. Okay. Now, now that we've been knocked sideways, it sets a new direction. The new direction is not get it back. The new direction is keep pushing forward with what you have in the position that you're going now. And it was shared with me when my buddies who was a Navy SEAL and he said, when you're going out to do a mission, um, as long as we're continuing to move forward towards the goal, sometimes the route changes because of the obstacles that have been put in our way. We may have to go around something. That's fine. We go around it. Okay. It never goes according to plan. It, and if it does watch out, something ain't right. Okay. And that's what golfers need to look at. If it's so easy and it's so good and you feel so good, well, as a pitcher in the bullpen, that's when we used to say, oh, my God. And our coach would come in and say, hey, look, you know, you're having you're, you know, you're feeling really good. Let's get really disciplined. Let's get really focused. So what I always ask my players to do is ask yourself, what would my colleagues do here? Can I be better than them in this situation? When I know it's hard, when I know it's not easy, when I know it's difficult, can I beat them with it? Yeah. Um, 
Sorry, just writing some stuff down here. And with that, so makes you think of using, you know, you mentioned getting from one point to the next point with the goal. You ever map out, well, before GPS, not GPS even does it too, but anyways, I remember we were taking a trip from Indiana to Virginia. Uh, I have a brother out in Virginia at that time. And I remember I missed one turn and my brother who was sitting aside, he's like, what are you doing? Now I got to go blah, blah, blah and do like all this other stuff. Um, but Hey, guess what? We still got there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what's funny, right? And that's such a great example. I want you to think those of you who remember when you had to print out MapQuest, you had your almanac or your Atlas in the back and your map book and you're trying to search. Right. And if you're driving through town or and this would happen, you know, I can remember when we flew to, we went to Spain like six, seven years ago, eight years ago. And that was before kind of international calling. So we weren't going to turn on our cell phones or whatever. And we get out and we're like, where in the hell are we? Of course, the GPS isn't working on the rental cars. We're driving through the tunnel and we're driving through. And all of a sudden, and I remember looking at the water and saying, I remember this hotel is east. So I was like, as long as the Mediterranean is on my left, I'm going in the right direction until my GPS connects. In those situations where we feel lost and we feel stressed, the worst thing to do is to have people yelling and screaming at you. The worst thing to do is to turn on the radio on super loud. The worst thing to do is to overstimulate. But that's what we do in competition, right? All of a sudden, oh, I got to fix my swing right now. I mean, it's just, I can't believe this is happening. My coach, God, I can't believe I got to get my, it's like, sometimes you ain't got any feel today. I mean, I don't know why you woke up that way. You got nine hours sleep. You ate a good breakfast and you showed up and your feel component left you. Don't know why. Don't know why. But what happens is we're all angry about it. And so we overstimulate ourselves versus going, what's the most base? Okay, Mediterranean is in front of me. I need to go east. Or excuse me, west. Uh, that's what it was. It was west. I need to go west. That's to the right. Okay, I can do that. Um, and so as long as the med was on my left, I was going west. I was fine. And I eventually got to, I mean, it was funny. I actually got to the hotel. I got off and I was like, God, I made it. Okay. But the whole time I wasn't sitting there on my phone, making phone calls, turning up the radio. I was trying to reduce all the stimuli that I had going on. Yeah. So do you, do you recommend then, you know, from a golf performance standpoint on those days where you have, or I guess more just developing it, like a stock shot that you're really confident in and you know, you can always trust kind of a thing. Yeah. I want them to have a go-to. Yeah. I want them to know that. You know, listen, if, if it's hitting the fan and you don't know what to do, there's one shot you can hit. And there are some days you don't have it. I mean, there's some days you just literally wake up and you ain't got anything. Okay. Um, we, we can send out search parties on that, but I'm not re- I don't really worry about that. What I tell my players is go have a nice dinner and let's flush it. Okay. Um, the, the, the ones that are good, though, and it's amazing. I remember one of my players struggled with his driver all year. And he was struggling with his swing and he comes into a tournament and he goes, you know, I'm just going to tee it down this week and hit little stingers all week. Golf course will allow it. Uh, premiums in play is, is accuracy. He had his longest driving um, stats of the year that year. And damn near won the tournament, like came in second. Um, and he was really, if you asked him, how was your driver? He's like terrible, but he was just, you know, and sometimes we have to do that, you know, like I, I don't understand why we teach juniors. And I mean, this. if you're coaching, you're listening to this, we, we train juniors to let it rip on the driving range. Right. And I think that's great. Let it rip. But then they go out in tournaments. And if that's not there that day, they got no chance to play zero. And I was walking in practice around at the PGA with Brian Harmon, who's one of my clients and Daniel Berger, who's not one of my clients, but I work with Florida state golf. And so we were just, 
reminiscing about them and I was talking about how bad their football program was, not realizing that LSU was going to be in that situation right now. But anyway, um, and he goes, and one of the guys in the group was at the PGA was a PGA professional who's also a college coach. And he said, what would you tell my college players at my place? And he said, and Brian, you know, being just the world's best short game made a comment of, listen, guys, if you can't hit, if you can't get the ball up and down from in front of the green, you can't make simple putts. It's a long career out here. And Berger said, please tell them to hit the ball in, in play off the tee. I don't care if it's 350. I don't care if it's 275 or 280. I play with these guys, and, man, they look so good on the range. But when we get a money game that's that's jamming, and I'm looking for balls in the trees over and over and over again, once or twice around, I don't care how on their great day how good they are. On their average day, they can't compete. And if you watch Tour, the guys that can't average the ball at least – I mean, yes, there's some stats and some great stats about bombing it down there, um, but they're also the world-class players, and they're, they're dispersion with their drivers, not our dispersions. And I, when I'm working with juniors and coaches, I'm like, can you have a shot that you can get in play off the tee? It's a 400-yard hole. Do you need to hit it 355? You suck from 50 yards. How about hit our two-iron and put it at our 100-yard marker and attack? And they, that's like, that's like speaking Latin to them. Like, but that's what the best players do in college. Like the best college players find a way to get a round in the house every week. And they may look at it. I mean, Henrik Stinson won a major and was one of the top players in the world, if not number one in the world, hitting a three wood as his primary driving club. I mean, it's, it's, but it's not okay for Bobby or Sue to not rip it. We've got to let it, you know, we've got to know that there's days to let, let it eat and to let it ride when you're feeling just dialed in. But there's other days that you got to be really smart about what you're doing and be strategic around the golf course that never, I mean, it's really hard to score with penalty shots, whether it's in a, a formal penalty shot or a ball chipping out sideways. It's really hard to score. You'll make, may, may make a par doing that every now and then. It's really hard to do that time and time again. Right, so avoiding avoiding that uh that hazard, and makes me feel better uh, playing my three wood throughout my uh, high school career because none wrong with a it. Slice on my drive. Well, you got to remember too, your the three wood that you played was the drivers back thirty years ago. So, you know the 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 players today. You know it's funny, and, and I always want fans to go walk around and watch a player play a practice round. They're going to hit bad shots. They're going to, you know, they're going to lay back a 470 yard hole. They may hit a three wood because they they're like, look, I can hit a 220 club in as long as it's, I can get the club on the ball. When it's in the rough, it makes it really hard to play the game. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about the, the, the random players of, you know, the you know, people will pull up the Cameron champs for so long, but when Cameron wins, he always seems to lead the field in putting. It's funny how that works. Bryson at Wingfoot, Yes, I know, but he was also putting beautifully. Okay. You know, it's it, it was a strategy that worked at that golf course, but it didn't seem to work at some other places. And that's just that's OK. You know, it, it just takes, you know, you look at the best players. They know how to make the game. They know how to get the ball. They know how to do what it takes to maximize what they're doing every week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, different strategies. I mean, we, I think it was pointed out pretty nicely at the uh, at the Masters with with Bryson's drives and versus, uh, I think they were comparing them to, oh, I forgot, why can't, 
I just lost my name. The uh, the German guy. What's his name? Langer. Oh, Langer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bryson. Uh, in in full disclosure, I don't work with Bryson. Bryson was under the weather that week. Um, right. And and he made mention to it, and people tend to jump on him when he makes excuses. He wasn't making an excuse; he just wasn't feeling well. That happens, right? That's just bad luck sometimes. Um, but he also, I mean, he took some strategies. He executed poorly. It doesn't matter how hard he's swinging on the second hole of his round because he was playing with one of my guys. I was watching him play on the second hole of the day. He's you know on Thursday he's starting off and he's teeing off on eleven and he snap hooks it, and I think he found it. But you know that's a hard way to get started when you snap the first one. You know, our second drive hit of the day. I mean, that tends to stick in there with like scar tissue. So, you know, I, I bring those up because I think as fans, we have to remember, we have to look back. It's like, you know, there are weeks that they're good and there are weeks that they're exceptional and there are weeks that they're just not very good. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny to watch. I remember when um, Brian Harmon almost won the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills the week before the Memorial. He was DFL. Or the week before he took a week off. He was DFL, like before the cup. Um, and then he goes up to Aaron Hills and I left the practice round on Wednesday and I texted my wife before I went to the airport and I said, Brian Harmon's going to win this thing. I mean, he was awesome. And, and longest U S open in history and Brian Harmon, who everyone doesn't think hits it very far. He hits it plenty far enough guys. Don't believe the rhetoric. Um, it's lazy reporting. Um, it's kind of like John Rahm has an anger problem. It's lazy reporting. So don't believe it. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. It's like, you take your skills, you go apply it against the test, you go compete, you go give it all you got, and you line them up the end and see where you were and see how you did against the golf course that week, not against other people, against the golf course. Yeah, I think that's important to remember. Is, you know, Again, I think it parallels back into life, right? You, you take care of yourself and yep. not worry about all the other people. You know, you see your best friends, they're taking a vacation down to, down to Jamaica or something like that, and you're like, oh, man, I don't have money for that. And you have no idea the circumstances uh, behind yep. that. Uh, so, all right. So I had asked a few of the listeners, some, some questions yeah, that they had you know, for you. Um, and uh, I said, I, I asked our listeners for a few, few questions that they wanted oh. you to answer. So I've got a few here lined up uh, and see what you got to say. So one is about the, you know, pre-shot routine. And they were wondering if you, if you guide people to, to time it and to kind of to rehearse it that way to, to kind of get the, you know, make it as consistent as possible. You know, I'm not the biggest, I'm not the biggest proponent of a pre-shot routine. Okay. Um, a pre-shot routine. I use the word routine, not like a dance routine. I use the word routine. Like it's a, a process to make it feel normal. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things in the pre-shot routine that I care about. Most of the time players in a pre-shot routine get too fast. Um, and so it's more of a reflection mentally that they're not focused, that they're blending execution and process um and so they're in a hurry and usually because they're uncomfortable so they go faster so just a couple elements of a pre-shot routine that i love is i love a player to just take a deep breath before they execute call the shot they want to hit and then step in i don't care if you lick your lips i don't care if you waggle i don't care what you do as long as you make it yours and you don't even have to do it the same time i I find a lot of players say well you know i did the same thing over and over again and i'm like well how'd you play terrible i'm like okay How about you be an athlete, right? I want clear intention. I want acceptance of the outcome. And I want a purpose of what you want to do in the shot. That's all I care about. And 
All right, next one. How can a golfer deal with struggling on a particular hole regularly? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. In our group, we play a lot of wolf, and we have about 30 guys, 20 guys that we play with. And there's one guy who's probably a higher handicap. I mean, maybe he's an older guy. And he hates one hole, just hates it. And he's always like, don't pick me on this hole. And it's like, I wasn't planning on it. I'm hoping you don't pick me. But the truth is that he's got this bugaboo about it. Well, it's the same way of like, if you and I were driving through an intersection, we just got plowed by an 18-wheeler, right? Well, two years from now, every time we went through that intersection, we're going to remember the trauma. And it's not going to go away. You just can't think it away. The best thing to do when you have a hole that you hate, and I've got one that I'm like that on, is you step up on it and you go, I hate this hole. Okay, cool. Say it. Yeah, cool. Did it hurt you? No. Okay, now what are we going to do? Well, you know what? I'm going to play this shot because this is what fits my eye. It may be a hole that's a draw hole that you can only hit a cut and, it's, and you try to do too much. It's like, look, break it down the strategy you do. This one hole that we've got, I'll hit a four iron off the tee. Now, fortunate enough, I can hit a seven iron in on the par, uh, to the par th- uh, four. But if it's pressure, I struggle and I will, it's not even a long hole, but I will snap hook it. I will, there's something set up with the way it feels. It just, it hates me. It, 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 it's kind of like eating chili at 10 o'clock at night. I am going to taste it, feel it, everything all night long. And the problem is it's on the back nine. It's our 15th hole at one of our courses and it just builds on me all around. And if I make a par, I'm like, I feel like I just dodged everything. Um, but you just have to acknowledge it. It's okay to say, I hate this hole. But what happens is most people go, I hate this hole. Don't think this way. Don't, don't just get through it. And their pre-shot routine sucks. Their intention sucks. They're just trying to survive it. I like to look at it as, I don't like this hole. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face it today doing it my way. And if it means I'm going to you know, have to be creative, I'll be creative. Awesome. I remember a uh, hole in the course we played in high school. It was a uh, cow pasture on the right. And um, a creek on the left and, you know, fairway, maybe, maybe 40 yards wide. I hated that hole every time. And it was, it was a good length. I can't remember the exact distance, but you know, it was upper fours. And so it was a pretty long hole too. And I hated that hole anyways. So, yeah, well, you can see the, I mean, we just naturally get tension. We get frustration. We get angst that comes up with it. And what happens is that level of struggle that pops up just kind of creates more anxiety in us. Versus going, I hate you, Bob. You know, number 15, I hate you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to fight you, though. So let's go. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can't act like you don't hate it. And I don't know why you hate it. You just can't. You know, most people hate the first hole of their thing. I love our first holes. I usually play great on first holes. Why? Because I know other people hate them. All right, next question was, you know, what's – what are, what are, what's a method of keeping a good run of holes going? Once you start realizing you're in a good run, it usually breaks. Okay. Um, it's kind of like if you ever play craps and you start going, man, I'm in a really hot run. I can guarantee a seven's coming. Okay. Um, the best way to do is um, have it, you know, knowing that the, the deeper you're going, the more volatile it's going to get. All right. You still got to work your shot. You still got to lower your expectations. You still got to accept the outcome. If you're, if it breaks, one of the best things to do is eat, take a little eat of something. Um, one is people forget to eat. Their, their brain needs um, energy. It needs protein. It needs carbohydrates. It needs fluid. So make sure you get a little something to eat. You don't have to eat a meal. You don't have to cause a, you know, a, a post, you know, 
after meal uh, sleep, but just sometimes something little just to fuel it. It's also a great thing to do if you have a struggle. Um, but then the thing is to look at it and say, I had a good three holes there. Now, okay, let's challenge for the next three holes. Can I commit to my shots? Can I execute? You know, during the course of 18 holes, you're going to have six holes that are freaking awesome. You're going to have six holes that are mm, going to be pretty hard and six holes that are going to fall in between. The good days is when those 12 hit together. Um, and it's just, you know, there's sometimes front nine, back nine. It's just staying in the present, the golf shots, trying to be as systematic as you possibly can. Last question here from, from the group is um, you've, you've talked about similarities between mindset and business and golf. And one listener uh, in particular uh, working in working for himself asked, what did it take to go from a corporate man to an independent consultant? Uh, guts, um, stupidity, ignorance. Um, you know, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for eight years and um, I love my job until I didn't. I love my boss, still do. My boss was one of the greatest mentors I ever had. She gave me the opportunity and the flexibility to create it. My, my wife is my boss now um, because she's got a really good sense and business sense and a very uh, organized way of thinking and, and setting it out. When I wanted to leave, um, my daughter was going to be a freshman in high school. We didn't have a college plan set up for her yet because we had kids really young and I was getting through my education. Um, and... Uh, I just needed to bet on myself. And the idea was I would lick concrete if it meant revenue. I would do anything. I'd go anywhere. I'd do whatever it took. Um, my wife, when I was working in the pharmaceutical industry, said, you have to replace your salary in order to leave before you leave. And, uh, and I said, okay, I make X. And she goes, no, 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 gross. And what you get for your car and what our insurance is. And she listed it all out. And in February of that year, I did it. In 2011, I did it. Um, and and I still overperformed and outperformed my metrics for my company job. Um, and so I was working all the time. And then I said, oh, I did it. All right, all right. She goes, well, you got to do it again because some of those are one-offs. Like, I need to know we've got stability and safety here. Now, we thankfully had good families that would have helped us, but we didn't want to do that. Um, and, and so I was very fortunate. I was very... Uh, I think I was very hit at the right time, but I also supplemented my consulting practice and I went back and consulted in the pharmaceutical industry too. So that was a stopgap. Um, the other thing too, as an entrepreneur, I know that I'm at the right time as the growth of the mental side is gaining. I did not foresee working with this number of tour players that I work with. Um, I never thought I would do that. I, I thought I would probably work in certain settings or whatever. Um, I, I think people are ready from family standpoints to invest in that for their kids. Um, and I'm very fortunate for that. Um, but I also, I, I learned from my parents, both my parents worked around the clock. Um, they both had businesses on the side. I mean, they stayed married their entire lives, but they always had side hustles. It wasn't uncommon for my dad to work as a pharmacist, as a hospital director of pharmacy, and then have a consulting gig on the outside. That was completely approved. And work when you get home at seven o'clock at night till midnight and get up and leave at five o'clock in the morning. That was the world that I knew. My mom was always working. My dad was always working. I had an amazing childhood, but I grew up in a household where you'd never missed your kids' sporting events and you would make the sacrifices to always be at their events. And you always worked around the clock. And my oldest daughter has got her own business. She's 23. She's hundred percent self-sufficient. She's got a 
social media business um, that specializes in businesses and small businesses. And it's not just, hey, I'll post your content. She's got a formula of how she does things. And she has a master's in digital marketing um, from University of Alabama in, in the specialization. And she kicks royal ass. That girl works 16, 17 hour days. And we were talking about, she came in town last night for dinner and from Atlanta. And we were just talking about it. And she's like, well, where else do you think I learned to work like this? She works Saturdays, Sundays. I mean, she hustles. And so I think the problem with a lot of us in entrepreneurship is we're trying to leave something when really we need to be running towards something. My wife and I watched a documentary on Hugh Hefner, right? And if you haven't watched it on Amazon Prime, it's fantastic. Now it's got the elements of Hugh Hefner that you'd expect of Playboy and things like that. But she said, you know, I thought he was just this dirty old man. She said he was kind of like the Steve Jobs of his generation. That guy was the most innovative. Yes, topless women. Okay, yes, if that offends you, I'm sorry. Listen to what I'm saying. He was innovative in what he had. He thought, he did what he knew. He knew what he did. He knew how to grow business. And he had a, I mean, he wasn't somebody I would marry or want my daughters to marry. But he worked 24 hours a day. And that led to a lot of his other stuff that we've seen on the side. But he was a tireless worker. Just wore it out. I see a lot of people who think they're going into private practice or whatever, and, and they think that they're going to be able to go home every night at five. You know, if you're getting off at five and going in at eight, you're not working on entrepreneurship and growing your own thing. You're working, you're working a clock. There is no clock of success. You've got to go and get after it. Awesome. Well, those are all the questions that we had from the listeners. We've got a few wrap-up questions, and we'll let you get out of here to respect your time. I know yep. you've got some stuff you got to do here in just a little bit. Uh, first question is, what's your favorite golf memory? Um, never had a hole-in-one, never seen one. Saw my daughter make one. Uh, never seen one in the group I was playing, and I was watching my daughter. That was cool to watch her make a hole-in-one. Um, both my daughters have hole-in-ones. I don't have any. I've been playing since I was five. Never seen one in the group I'm playing with. It's crazy. Um you know, favorite golf memory besides that. I mean, I think that was probably it. I, I saw, I, I loved watching my kids have great rounds and they weren't college players. I mean, they didn't, they weren't like, you know, we didn't make them practice seven days a week and stand out there by them, but to have them realize what they were capable of doing in a tough game. They loved it. I remember my oldest daughter, she took a golf class in college and the professor looked at her for the first day and said, you don't have to come back this semester. <laughs> like you've already passed it. And she was like, no, I want to come back. And so she did. But I, I love that. I mean, I love going out on a Sunday afternoon with my kids when they liked it and enjoyed it and wanted to be a part of it. Those are the things that I loved about golf. You got a favorite exercise or drill that you like to do to, for your personal game? Uh, I wish I practiced um, personal game. I just love, I love short putts. If I'm making short putts, I can deal with the long putts. Um, I like chipping to open space, you know, just things like that. I like to feel the game. I'm not a field player, but I like to feel the elements and just assume that I'll be able to apply it when I get out there. Um, it's the best drill for me is I just like to put it inside five feet. What's the takeaway you want the listeners to apply this from our conversation? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, I, I would go back to the mental health side and say, look, um, stuff's real hard right now. If you need help, reach out. Don't feel like you're alone in this. Um, there is help out there. There are prof professionals that do this for a living that are very well trained to help you. The burden of what we're going through in life, you're not alone. You're not thinking crazy. You're not 
crazy. You're not any of that. It's all bullshit. Um, the best thing to do is to realize that you have the ability to keep pushing through. And if it's hard right now, doesn't mean it's going to be hard two years from now, one month from now. It just maybe right now is just a day we just need to lace them up a little bit and trudge through the garbage that we're going through in our life. And it may start clearing. So, you know, we just got to never give up, never give in. All right. Well, that's all the questions. Brett, thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, where can we follow you? Where can we support what you're doing? Um, you can follow me on anything on social media at Dr. Brett McCabe, and that's spelled B-H-R-E-T-T. You can also go to brettmccabe.com or themindside.com, and you can get to everything you need from me there. And, and I hope that you follow me on social media. That's the easiest way to interact, and I'm active on it. My daughter runs it, but I'm active on it, and uh, we'll go from there. Awesome. That's it for this episode of the Golf Under Par podcast. We want to get, we'll have all of Brett's information in the show notes below. And thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you, Brett, so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.